Hello, everybody. Last week's podcast went so well that my campaign is officially back on track. So in preparation for my inevitable victory, I've decided to start planning for the next steps. I know I haven't been chosen by any party, and I know I will never be chosen by any party. Nonetheless, things are going so well, at least in my own head, that I think it's time I took the next step. I think it's time I chose a vice presidential candidate. Now, people argue about the best way to choose a VP. Do you do it to shore up regional weaknesses? Do you do it to inspire your base? Do you do it to moderate the strength of your opposition? Well, I don't have any regional strengths, and I don't have any regional weaknesses. Nobody agrees with me, and so I don't have a base. And let's just say that my campaign is on the subtle end of the threatening spectrum, so I don't have an opposition. This frees me to choose a VP for the only real job a VP has, keeping the president alive. You see, a VP doesn't do much, normally. Their job is to be second in line to the presidency. If you have a VP, your opposition fears more than you, then nobody will try to kill you. Cheney frightened Bush haters more than Bush did. They thought Cheney was both competent and evil. Bush was just evil, so nobody tried to kill Bush. Meanwhile, Pence scares Trump haters more than Trump does. Pence, again, is both competent and evil. Trump is just evil. So nobody has tried to kill Trump. That's why the impeachment is going nowhere. The Democrats don't want Pence. But George Bush Sr.? The opposition thought he was far preferable to Reagan, so somebody tried to kill Reagan. Same thing with Kennedy and McKinley. The opposition preferred the VP to the president, so they killed the president. It works all the way back to Lincoln. Lincoln was far scarier to Southerners than Andrew Jackson was. Thus, exit stage left. If William Bernard All Sherman had been Lincoln's vice president, then he would have been safe. So all I have to do is find somebody my opposition likes less than me. Which is a challenge, because, as I mentioned before, I don't have a base, and I don't have an opposition. I'm not really right or left. I'm not even in the middle. I'm on my own channel. If I choose a right-wing fanatic, then a right-winger will eliminate me. And if I choose a lefty, then a left-winger will eliminate me. And if I choose a moderate, both sides will take their chances. No, I need somebody simultaneously right-wing and left-wing. Somebody like me, but more offensive. Maybe I could choose Ayatollah Khomeini. But knowing my luck, radical right-wingers will embrace his family values, while radical left-wingers will celebrate his diverse heritage and strong opposition to American imperialism. Ah well, if you have any ideas about who should be my VP, let me know. I'd like to survive my term in office. So last week I discussed my new format. I don't know if it worked though. Initial downloads spiked, but follow-on listens dropped off dramatically. That isn't good. So I've decided to shake things up a bit more. Now Yitz, that Yitz, the same one who wanted to uh, encourage me to change my format, wanted me to go into real detail on a single topic. He wanted me to use my expertise to unpack something complex. And I'm going to take a shot at exactly that. I hope I don't disappoint. So here goes. I think the U.S. conflict with Iran isn't about terrorism or militias or any of that. It isn't even about oil. Let's start this story at the very beginning, with the rise in fracking. Starting in October of 2011, U.S. oil production started to rise precipitously. From 2007 to 2011, it had risen 15% and it was only getting started. At the same time, the rise in oil demand was slackening. 
Over the same period, demand for oil had risen only 2.7%. The writing was on the wall, and trends would only accelerate in the years to come. By 2013, U.S. oil production had risen a remarkable 60% over 2000 levels, while demand had only risen 5%. The impact on the price of oil was massive. In May 2008, oil hit $145 a barrel. By 2013, it had fallen by 23%. Oil had been called black gold, but now it was about to be supplanted by something new. In 2013, Miles Nelson, a second-grade child in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, wrote Vice President Biden a letter. He suggested that real bullets be replaced with chocolate ones. Unusually, Biden wrote back. In his letter, Biden responded, I really like your idea. If we had guns that shot chocolates, not only would our country be safer, it would be happier. People love chocolate. You are a good boy. Biden had seen the future. In this increasingly green age, the future was not oil, which fuels industry. Instead, it was chocolate, which fuels happiness. We can call it bitter gold. Biden didn't just watch the chocolate world unfold, though. He immediately got involved. He sent his son, Hunter, to explore connections with the world's largest supplier of industrial-grade chocolates, the Ukrainians. One of the most powerful men in Ukraine is Viktor Poroshenko. He is known as the chocolate billionaire because he runs Roshen, a major chocolate manufacturer. He was responsible for getting Ukraine's President Zelensky elected. Quickly, Hunter and Carrie's stepson came to an arrangement. They would buy chocolate bullets in mass from Russian chocolates, and Russian would help them out with a small advance. According to a Reuters article, the consulting company owned by Hunter Biden, John Kerry's stepson, and a friend of theirs, was paid $3.4 million over 18 months by a Ukrainian company. Of course, it wasn't delivered by Russian. It was delivered by another Ukrainian company, this one ostensibly involved in the old energy business. Of course, Obama got involved because it provided the perfect combination of benefits. His friends would be enriched and the U.S. war machine would be undermined. He thus decided to provide the Ukrainians support in their war with Russia, strengthening the deal. They needed it. In 2014, Russia imposed a ban on the import of Ukrainian chocolate. At about the same time, the U.S. Army kicked off an effort at designing a new weapon. As Army officials said at the time, a successful effort at weapon design starts with the ammunition. They began exploring radical options. On the face of it, they were working on an unusual polymer casing. But in the background, although all military officials will deny there was such a program, they were using the polymer testing as an exploration of the possibility of chocolate rounds. Everything would have gone swimmingly had Hillary Clinton been elected in 2016. The small arms ammunition configuration study had just been concluded, and the possibility of something completely new had been laid. But then, with the help of Russian officials interested in kneecapping Ukraine's rival chocolate ambitions, Trump was elected. Trump is a relatively small player in the chocolate world, but he does sell chocolates in the shape of gold bars on his website. It is a significant business for him. And, as we know, his greed knows no bounds. He'll cheat a contractor for a few thousand dollars, so of course, he will risk a major war for a few hundred thousand. And more than that was on the table. Trump had an unusual problem. Unlike other manufacturers who can vary the size of their bars in response to price pressures, Trump's chocolates have to have the same size, shape, and even appearance of standard gold bricks. Because of this fixed size, Trump cares greatly about the cost of his raw materials. 
Trump was worried that valuable chocolate would get siphoned off, with millions of rounds of chocolate being uselessly splattered against shooting range walls. Demand for raw chocolate would soar, and the price of Trump's raw ingredients would rise precipitously. And so, Trump started investigating the Bidens. In fact, realizing both the Kerrys and the Bidens were involved with the Ukrainians, Trump decided to withhold military aid. He would help his Russian friends and force the Ukrainians to find a new sponsor. Secretly, everybody knew Trump would relent if Burisma just hired Trump Jr. Of course, the Democrats had to fire back with the threat of impeachment. The Ukrainian contracts were just too valuable, and if the Bidens and Kerrys didn't deliver, then people could get hurt. While all of this was going on, Iran was becoming a bigger player in the chocolate market. Facing major sanctions in other areas, Iran refocused on the bitter gold. Chocolates and confectionery exports recently rose 13%, remarkable for a country in its economic situation. The Iranians were exporting to Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, and yes, Azerbaijan. This has put them into direct competition for the Ukrainians, for whom Azerbaijan is also a major market. Faced with challenges in their oil sector, the Iranians had really thought ahead. It made a complex situation even more involved. Everybody was on a hair trigger. The future of chocolate was at play. Trump was pushing for low prices. The Democrat-Ukrainian alliance was pushing for the Ukrainian bullet contract. The Iranians were gunning for the Ukrainian markets, and the Russians were working with both Iran and Trump to dent the Ukrainians in any way they could get away with. And then Iran made their move. Unlike Trump and the Ukrainians, the Iranians were plotting a massive change in the chocolate market. They had dispatched Hezbollah teams to South America, a major chocolate-producing region. They had also sent them to Nigeria, a West African country that is not only close to Ghana and the Ivory Coast, but a major chocolate producer in its own right. Hezbollah was not only securing Iran's own direct chocolate supplies, they were planting the seeds for a chocolate revolution. Then this season, that revolution happened. Kopec came into force. You may never have heard of it, but it is huge in the chocolate world. It is a raw chocolate cartel, ostensibly designed by the Ivory Coast and Ghana to drive up the price of chocolate. While you'll never find it mentioned by the mainstream media, it was all organized by Hezbollah in Nigeria. South American producers are considering joining the effort. That, too, is no coincidence. With COPEC, the chocolate OPEC, Iran would be able to push up global prices while keeping their own prices low due to their linkages into the Nigerian South American markets. This means they will have a significant cost advantage over other chocolate producers, pushing into Ukrainian markets, squeezing Trump chocolates, and perhaps becoming the only viable supplier of the chocolate bullet business. After all, they had already established strong links with the U.S. Democratic Party during the nuclear investigations. And everything had been set up by the Iranian strategic mastermind responsible for Hezbollah, Qasem Soleimani. With the arrival of Kopec, Trump and the Ukrainians suddenly had a common enemy. That enemy was Soleimani, the architect of this amazing chocolate coup. Trump had to act, so he killed Soleimani. He expected democratic support, but they didn't back him up. They were already looking forward to the Iranian, instead of the Ukrainian, bullet contract. Meanwhile, the Iranians were concerned about what might come next. Anybody who's watched the 2003 remake of The Italian Job knows how brutal Ukrainians can be. So the Iranians had to respond forcefully. They fired missiles at U.S. bases to show they could strike anywhere, and they shot down a Ukrainian aircraft full of Iranian nationals to show that they were willing to pay whatever price was necessary to take down their rivals and protect their unfolding chocolate empire. At this point, the future is unclear. 
But there's one thing Americans, Ukrainians, Russians, and Iranians can agree on. West Africans may think they're players in the chocolate market, but they can't be allowed to threaten the future. That's our job. What about me? Well, I would love to see a world in which we only need chocolate bullets. And if we get there, I can assure you that the procurement contract will be completely transparent. Only the most worthy suppliers will have their crack at the deal. But I have heard that my close friends, the Swiss, make some excellent chocolate and excellent ammunition. Yet, I hope you understand now why I don't go into depth. You see, I'm not running for CIA analyst. I'm running for president. I'm a big picture guy. It'll be my job to make decisions based on my broad worldview, which is good because I know next to nothing but I know it about everything. People who are too fixated on one thing, say chocolate, tend to see everything through that delicious dark prism. I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to do the presidential thing. I'm going to continue to skim over topics like I know what I'm talking about. And you are going to hold your detailed questions until I can hire some analyst to bore you with meaningless and unending analytical drivel. When they run out of things to say, I'll tell them to use the most effective two words in federal politics. It's classified. That'll be sure to quell anyone's conspiracy theories. Oh, and the loss of life on that Ukrainian jetliner was a terrible tragedy. It just adds to the civilian toll of war in this region. While the deaths of these particular passengers was accidental, Iran has intentionally killed civilians on many occasions, and we know that they continue to intentionally target civilians up until this very day. I do have some real commentary to share this week. Unfortunately, we are running a little short on space. I could revisit Iran, talk about Indian citizenship protests, touch on the storming and restorming of the Venezuelan parliament, talk about student debt, or even visit Carlos Gossin's latest legal troubles. I don't want to get too repetitive, so how about student debt? Americans have $1.5 trillion in student debt. It's drowning us. It's drowning our young, and all the solutions people recommend will just make things worse. The whole student debt crisis started years ago with an admirable thought. Anybody should be able to afford a college education. The rich had a huge advantage in the poor, and that bridge would never be crossed unless college was put within reach of anybody. And so, through a system of grants and loans, college was subsidized for those who couldn't pay for it. Of course, like any subsidized thing, prices steadily rose. The logic is simple. If the government will pay X then you can charge X plus Y, because after all, the market will bear the cost. There are enough students who can pay the extra Y. But then, to ensure the poor students can get an education, the government pays X and Y. The government can't actually enforce costs. I've worked in a quasi-governmental body. All we needed was a good excuse, and costs could safely exceed our projections. We didn't face free market bankruptcy because we failed to deliver cost savings. So, bit by bit, year after year, we get X plus Y plus Y plus Y plus Y and so on. And before long, you've got schools with beautiful quadrangles, ranks of administrators, their own health systems and police forces, and, well, $1.5 trillion in student debt. Oh, and the education the system is providing isn't any better and might actually be worse than it was before. The same logic applies to healthcare, although the quality of what's being delivered in that market has improved. So what can you do? How can you give educational opportunities to the poor while helping to control costs? I recommend the same thing I recommended for healthcare, but with a twist. The government will pay the median cost of education for the desired degree. If students spend more, they have to cover the difference. This is similar to what we have now. But if students pay less, then they will keep up to 10% of the difference. 
This will drive down the cost of education because students will shop around for the best solutions for them. Of course, we don't want a whole bunch of diploma mills pumping out $5 sheets of paper for ten grand a pop. I've got no problem with innovation in education. The past shows we can deliver far more value than we do today. So, I don't want us cutting off innovators. Instead, we'll cap the available funds for individual programs at 10 times the difference between median salaries for those without a degree and those with a degree from that particular program at that particular college. Why this amount? Because it represents the very edge of what the government might recoup in additional taxes due to increased career earnings. A high school graduate earns a median of $29,000, and MIT engineering students earns a median first-year salary of $68,000. The difference is $39,000. This would mean a cap of $390,000. However, because the average engineering degree costs $169,000, that cap, representing the median cost, would be in place, and the student would have that much money to offer MIT. MIT charges more currently, so the student would have to pay up to attend the program. But let's say our student finds a cheaper program at the University of Phoenix. Let's say it costs $45,000 all in. However, if graduates only make $32,000, then they would see a gain in salary of only $3,000, so the government would pay no more than $30,000 for that education. The tax benefit is too small. But if the graduates make $40,000, then the cap would be $110,000. The University of Phoenix could charge $100,000, pocketing $55,000, while the student could take home the remaining $10,000. The end effect? the median cost of education would be pushed down while providers of cheaper, more innovative educational solutions would have an opportunity to expand their markets. The formula is simple. Students will be able to afford school, but they'll shop around, squeezing more and more value out of their schools year after year. At the same time, the net cost to society will be minimal. Will this program pay for degrees in lunar culture? Nope, not unless those degrees pay. Philosophers are great, but I don't think it's a public obligation to pay for them. We'll just help the children of the poor earn more than they can pay for their own children to be the philosophers. After all, while I think the government has a role to play in enabling material growth, I don't think the government should be responsible for our spiritual growth. On to today's story. Nobody told me that they wanted more of what they heard last week, so I've decided on a new direction. This one is also a book, just one that is a bit more fun than my standard fare. Of course, being a presidential candidate in the mold of Trump and Bloomberg, I want my name on everything. So the name of the book is, naturally, Candidate Everyone. Oh, and the main character is a Midwestern woman. You'll just have to ignore my ridiculous attempt at her voice. Candidate Everyone. Chapter 1. Coffee. By the third cup of coffee, I knew I had him hooked. I'd moved to D.C. three years earlier. I'd come here because I wanted to be in on the center of the action. I could have gotten along fine living out in the middle of nowhere, in the provinces, as I started to call them. I could have grown old, not mattering. Or I could make a stab at being in the place where it seemed like everything important in your life got decided. For me, the choice was obvious. But just being in the place wasn't enough. I didn't want to be a nobody whose only connection to power was that I cleaned power's offices. I wanted more. I wanted to really matter. And that, of course, wasn't easy. The obvious way to get in, to matter, was to get elected. Those were the big boys in town. But getting elected takes time, serious time. You can't generally just skip and jump into the House of Representatives, much less the Senate. 
You have to put your time in on the city council, state legislature, etc., etc., etc. I didn't have the patience. To be honest, I probably didn't have the charisma to pull it off, even if I had had the patience. So that was a no-go. The next option was to get on somebody's staff. Sometimes the staff matters more than the face in the front of the office. But that wasn't going to work for me either. Those folks, the ones who mattered, fell into two broad categories. The first group came from the hoity-toity Ivy League schools with all the right connections. They were operators. The second group were those interns who specialized in extracurricular skills. I would have been up for that, I think. But quite brutally, I don't have the looks to compensate for my weight. I'm the kind of woman who's most likely to reproduce thanks to the anonymous services of a sperm bank. There was another path, a classic path. Get involved in a campaign, volunteer, get close to the candidates, and then get in on some cushy job. Of course, that was really just the same as getting elected. To be really close to the candidate, you had to come up through the ranks with them. Otherwise, you were more likely as not to be tossed aside once the election was won, or most likely lost. And if you didn't pick the right candidate, you wouldn't go anywhere. And so, I did the only thing that made sense to me. After I graduated college with a useless degree in theater, I imitated aspiring actresses everywhere. I said goodbye to my parents in Minneapolis, grabbed my dog, hopped into my crappy old gray Honda Civic, and just drove to D.C. I got a job as a barista. And because it didn't pay much, I lived in that Civic. Then, I just kind of hoped for the best. Up until that day, it hadn't exactly been working out. It actually hadn't been working out for years. And then he came into the coffee shop. I could see right away that he was an operator. He had the eyes of a man on the make. He had what my daddy used to call a shit-eating grin on his face. And he looked like he was in a seriously good mood. But one thing he didn't look like was a socially conscious individual. And that was weird, because the coffee shop wasn't exactly normal. I mean, normal people didn't go there. We took the whole personalized, small-batch, fair-trade, farm-to-cup, yada-yada-yada thing to a crazy extreme. The founder actually sourced each bag of beans from individual family plantations, none of this industrial-scale stuff for us, and then tracked it through every stage of its life until it ended up in your cup. This stuff was crazy expensive, and in my opinion at least, not very good. But the people who came here were sending a message. They wanted other people to know they were socially aware. And we catered to that. Barely tolerable world music was piped through the speakers. We picked it because it was barely tolerable. A little sacrifice can make people feel particularly virtuous. The walls were paneled with rustic-looking bamboo sourced at Home Depot, and the plants seemed to hang from every available space. While the plants created a maintenance headache, our patrons could argue they'd been forest bathing with their coffee. Our customers wanted to feel good about themselves, and when they came into our shop, they did. But this guy already felt good about himself, so good, in fact, that he didn't notice his coffee was $12 a cup. But I knew he could afford it. His clothes were not only impeccable, they were seriously stylish. Too stylish for DC, in fact. After all, you don't want to look like an operator, even if you are. The constituents might get suspicious. When the shop first started up, the coffee wasn't $12 a cup. Nobody would pay that much. The founder got himself into serious financial trouble. He had this vision and he spent a crazy amount of money setting up his sourcing and his tracing. There was no way he could pencil out. Even if he sold a $5 coffee every 30 seconds, he wouldn't be able to pay off his investment. And then I showed up. He hired me as a barista. I think he did it because, because I was hideous and from the middle of nowhere. I fit the socially conscious image. But he got more than a barista when he took me on. 
I might not be book smart or beautiful, but I am incredibly good at getting things done. And I knew as soon as I realized what troubles he was having, just what he needed to do. That day when that stylishly dressed customer came in, I thought about asking him which family coffee plantation he wanted his brew from, but that might have killed his buzz. So instead, I just chose for him, and then I made his cup, delivered it to him, and pointed out the little barcode I'd just printed on it. What's that? he asked, perhaps more open than he'd been on a normal day. Just scan it, watch, and let me know what you think. And so he did. He took the coffee to a table, scanned the little barcode, and started watching. I actually saw him silently mouth a massive holy sh** as the video unfolded on his phone. It was an even better reaction than I was hoping for. You see, back when the founder of that little coffee shop was struggling, I knew he needed something really unique to show what his product was about. And so I delivered it. It took a little work to convince him to pour more money into the venture, but he did. He paid for some camera equipment, he paid for a bunch of travel, and he sent me to all of his little family coffee plantations. While there, I interviewed the family farmers. I talked to them about why they did what they did, from planting and picking to drying. I talked to them about why they were proud of the product they delivered. I talked to them about their heritage. One thing about me, I might not be charismatic or beautiful, but people love to talk to me. And then I flew to the millers who haul and polish and sort the beans, and I did the same thing, and then I visited the exporters who arranged the shipments of beans to our little store, and then I spoke to the roasters, and finally I interviewed all of our baristas. Afterwards, I put it all together, uniquely for each cup. When a barista prepared your cup, a computer would assemble its history and then print the appropriate barcode on the side of it. When you scanned the barcode, you'd watch the story of your coffee. You'd meet the people involved every step of the way, even your barista and you'd know that your coffee was more than just an average cup of joe. That day, my stylish customer watched the video, and then he bought a second cup of coffee and watched another video, and then I saw him decide to buy a third, and I knew right then that whatever he was up to, I'd be in on it. He wouldn't be able to resist. When he came up to the counter, he asked the question I was waiting for. Who made these? I just smiled, raised my hand, and said, Me. No, no, he said. Not the coffee, the videos. Me, I repeated. He looked at me, not quite understanding, and then it dawned on him that I meant exactly what I was saying. Slowly, deliberately, he laid twelve dollars on the counter, looked me in the eye, and said, How'd you like a job? Those five words changed my life forever. Actually, those five words changed your life, too. Folks, thanks again for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed this story, let me know. If people actually ask for it, I'll read Chapter 2 next week. Even if you didn't enjoy it, subscribe, share, recommend, and all that jazz. My podcast needs to grow. I really appreciate your support. Without you, my plans for world domination would never have a chance. Thank you, and have a fulfilling week.